Welcome to another episode of Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and agriculture brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association, along with our community radio station, WERU 89.9 FM Blue Hill. I'm your host, Caitlin Barker, and today we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics, beekeeping in Maine. I'm joined by my guests, Peter Cowan and Amy Nickerson, both longtime beekeepers and founders of Beekeeping 24-7, a membership-based beekeeping group founded on the principles of education, mentoring, and respect. Today, we'll be discussing topics that range from beginning beekeeping tips, advice for established beekeepers, and how our changing climate is impacting honeybees and honeybee management. Before we jump into this conversation, I'd like to let listeners know that this week is WERU's Fall Fund Drive. We're asking our community of listeners to consider becoming a new member, a sustaining member, or giving an additional gift. This helps keep programming on the airwaves and online and helps us continue creating great community radio. For more information, visit weru.org. Thank you. Now let's get into our show. So I'm here with Peter Cowan and Amy Nickerson talking about beekeeping in Maine. And why don't the two of you each take a few minutes to introduce yourself and tell us how you got started in beekeeping. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm Peter Cowan, otherwise known as the Bee Whisperer. I've been beekeeping on and off since I was 11. So that's since the early 1970s. I was typically a hobbyist beekeeper with two or three hives up until around about 2010 or so. Then I started scaling up and I was working and helping out my friend and mentor Harold Swan and in Brewer, who's sort of referred to as the grandfather of beekeeping in Maine. I started to also teach um, beekeeping in adult ed, which is in fact where I met the both of you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, um, so I was doing beekeeping beginner classes in adult ed. I started in Hamden, then extended to Bangor and Ellsworth. And soon I was doing it in 12 different regions around the state. And I was having two to 300 students every year. And at, in parallel with this, we're helping my friend Harold Swan. He had beekeeping supply store in Brewer, but he was finding it too much work, too much work to be handling all the equipment and that sort of thing. So I started helping him out there with the beekeeping supplies and then helping him with providing bees and getting bees and handling the bees when they arrived. And so these are bees for sale. And so when Harold passed away, about six, seven years ago, I started taking on beekeeping supply side of things as well. And I've been producing nucleus colonies or bees for sale. And so that radically increased the volume of everything I was doing. So now I have several hundred colonies during the spring and over winter about 130 colonies every year. But uh, my beekeeping teaching uh, at Adult Ed changed a whole lot during the pandemic because all of a sudden there weren't a way to doing it. And I'm a bit of a technophobe, so I was very slow at finding different alternative ways of reaching out. My youngest son taught me how to make videos uh, to put on YouTube as a way of reaching out. And so I started a YouTube channel, Beekeeping with the Bee Whisperer. I don't know if it, this is what inspired Amy's ideas, but we, Amy and I started to get together on the idea of another way of reaching out um, to beekeepers. And so, uh, but I'll let Amy talk about that. Now I run a beekeeping supply store here in Hamden. I sell bees and equipment. I 
teach a lot of beekeeping in through Beekeeping 24-7. And I uh, also make videos and teach beekeeping that way, reaching out around the world that way. And that's my beekeeping. Nice. Amy, tell me how you got into it. Well, my name's Amy Nickerson, and uh, my co-workers kind of nicknamed me the Queen Bee, and that's kind of stuck. I have a very high-stress job and, you know, find myself really needing a hobby and for, you know, stress and why I chose beekeeping. I have no idea. I was terrified of bees. Uh, anything that wouldn't buzz, I'd be running in the opposite direction. But one day, I believe I saw a commercial, Peter, of, of yours. Could have been on TV or something like that. I'm like, beekeeping, that's interesting and terrifying. <laughs> but I thought it would be really neat to, to do something that, you know, I could, you know, produce my own honey. And so I took a class from Peter at uh, Bangor Adult Ed, and I was immediately hooked. Then I took his intermediate class and, uh, you know, and got my first colony of bees from Peter. And it was about 10 years ago. So I've been keeping bees now for about 10 years. And that's kind of, we all came together too through Penobscot County Beekeepers. And from there, it just took off. I immediately killed several colonies of bees, <laughs> like all new beekeepers tend to do sometimes. And uh, poor Peter, um, I, I hounded this man uh, constantly. <laughs> I was calling him, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Uh, is this wrong? Is this right? And after I, I usually hear a giggle before he answered my question, like, oh, that's her again. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I've been keeping bees ever since. I finally got the hang of it. And Peter and I have been working together now in a couple of years on our beekeeping 24-7. And been super active in that, super active in Penobscot County Beekeepers. Um, and it's just kind of taken off from there. Yeah. So I had a similar experience about 10 years ago in terms of getting hooked. I, I was working at a children's center in Southern Maine and we got a call that there was a big swarm on the fence mm -hmm. and we didn't have a clue what to do, but you go on the Maine State Beekeepers website and there are contacts for people who can come in your county or, you know, call the local, local club. And so we had a beekeeper come over and he was kind enough to invite me to watch and explained exactly what was happening. And it was like a spark was lit. And from then I took a class from Rick Cooper in Southern Maine and it was the first time. And I, I say this jokingly, but it's true. I went through high school and college and I never had the experience of like ravenously taking in information that I did when I started beekeeping and learning. I wanted to just learn everything I could it, and it stuck. It was like, yeah. oh, this is what like student led learning is about Like when, when you're really interested in it, it really sticks. And so yeah. it took off from there. It's definitely an, an obsession, obsessive hobby. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, you know, you get one hive and we always recommend people start with two, but then you have four and then you have six and it continues and it continues until someone, uh, maybe your other half says that's enough, yeah. uh, but it's never enough really. Right. Yes. <laughs> you can never have too many. So, and I do all my beekeeping right in the city mm -hmm. as well. So it's a little different from, from Peter's beekeeping. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we can talk about that in a little bit. Um, I wanted to start with the idea of someone who has never done any beekeeping and their interest is peaked and they want to know where to start and I will say here in Maine it feels like winter has arrived or is arriving we've had temps below freezing at night and actually this feels like the perfect time to start thinking about beekeeping for the spring so as a new beekeeper where would you recommend they start yeah it, it really is the perfect time to start thinking about it because there's a lot to learn and so educating yourself is the the biggest 
hurdle because there's much more to it than people might appreciate. So signing up for something like a beekeeping class, reading the available literature and that sort of thing about it, that's, that, that's a key start. And then that gives you more of a guide as to what you want and where you want it and how much it's going to cost and that sort of thing. Signing up for a beekeeping class that we'll actually talk about as it, as it just happened and is purely coincidental, we're going to be doing a workshop for people considering keeping bees starting what will be next week after this comes out <laughs> uh, on the 13th of uh, November. So learning is the first step. And then securing your equipment, deciding where you're going to keep your bees. And this is all, all what these sort of beginner workshops are all about, deciding what sort of space you need, because you don't need a lot of space. You could keep bees on a rooftop. People keep bees in city centers and that sort of thing. Amy keeps bees in the city of Bangor. It takes very little time, really, although the basic requirements may be an hour a week, but you get hooked yeah. <laughs> and you end up spending a lot more time than that. Even just watching the bees, you could spend hours a day watching your bees and uh, because you get so much back mm-hmm. from it. The investment might be five to six hundred dollars for your first hive. It really depends on the extent of how uh, how much you spend on your protective gear and that sort of thing. Some people are really comfortable around bees, so they might just buy a pair of gloves and a veil. I tend to tick my bees off quite frequently. I wear a full suit all the time, mm-hmm. um, and so a full suit might cost you a hundred to hundred and fifty dollars, depending on the quality that you get. There's all, all sorts of other things. You'll you get some tools, that's sort of $600 or so. You can get your first beehive, your tools, your basic equipment and things. Your second hive might only cost you $300 or so. And so then you could, you're typically going to get your bees for the spring. And so the earlier you can order your bees, the earlier you can generally get them. If you're getting what's called a nucleus colony, you want to order early so you can get them early. If you're getting what's called a package of bees, you want to order early because people run out of packages. Harold used to run out in March, mm-hmm. uh, his sales and things. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between a nucleus colony and a package? Sure. Uh, different ways of purchasing bees. A package of bees would probably be the most common and the least expensive, where bees are shipped up here to Maine from colonies that have been growing for several months down south. So they literally, bees are shaken out of a hive, put into a screen box. A new queen bee is added to that box in terms of putting a queen bee in another cage. And that cage goes inside the box in order to give the bees a new queen. So this queen is not the mother of those bees in the hive. And so they take, need to take some time to get used to her. That's the simplicity of a package, but it's also the downfall, the problem with a package because you do run the risk that the bees decide we don't like this queen and they kill her. And then for a new, for a beginner or a newbie, this can be problematic because you don't often, uh, you can often overlook what the problem is before it's, and then it gets quite late. That's one of the reasons why classes are really helpful. So the package of bees, just the queen and bees, which go into a new hive and you've got to provide them with everything else. Whereas a nuke or nucleus colony is a colony already established, usually in about five combs. The queen bee has been with those bees for quite a while. She's been laying eggs since the colony. These five combs are full of brood, full of food in the form of pollen and honey. And they're they're already flying, as it were. 
So they're, they're probably the equivalent of what your package would have been in five weeks from the time that you get started. So nucleus colonies tend to cost a bit more, but they may be reared locally. So I produce hundreds of nukes here in Maine, but it means I can't be ready with those nukes until May or June. Uh, and so it takes a little longer, but you're already on the They're flight. already up and you're going. Already up and running. And likely the they've been here for a winter? Uh, the nukes, no, not necessarily. They may have been made that spring. Okay. Um, the first nukes I saw in the spring are ones that are overwintered. They were made this year. Then the bulk of the nukes I saw were made from splitting the colonies I had overwintered. And then because, like, if I have a colony with 12 frames of brood in there, the first three in the queen go to make up my overwintered nuke. The other eight frames all go to making up multiple other nukes where I've bought in queens from a queen breeder mm -hmm. to put into those new nukes. And then I grow them for several weeks for that queen to become established to make those nukes mm -hmm. for sale. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the cost, typically a package of bees might be $150, give or take 20, depending where you get them from. A nucleus colony might be 200 to $250, depending where you get them from and mm -hmm. the breed of bee that you buy. Okay, that's good info to start. So someone starting this winter, reading a lot of books, reaching out to someone who sells bees in terms of setting up an order and determining whether they want a nucleus or a package of bees or two. You mentioned, Amy, we, you often recommend getting two hives. Can you talk about why that's important? Sure. It took me about two years to, for Peter's message to get through to me <laughs> to get to. And as a new beekeeper, I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know. I don't want to. I don't even know what I'm doing with one. I don't want two. However, once it's sunk in, if you start with two colonies, generally, if you have a problem with one colony, it can be fixed by the other colony. If you, for some reason, you think you may be queenless in one colony, you can take a frame of eggs from your other colony and put it into the one that you think may be queenless. If they make a queen cell, it was queenless. If they don't, she's probably in there somewhere. If one is, is a lot weaker or smaller than the other one, you can equalize your hives and kind of bring them, you know, both up to the same type of level of strength. So definitely having two, it's a lot easier. And a lot of times, you know, that could save you from having to purchase another queen if you let them make their own queen, or it'll tell you that, that your hive was queenless and then you can go out and purchase a queen. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of in control of, of what it is that you want to do with your hives. Yeah, so. I found having two, it was so helpful to compare and contrast between the two right. of them and be able to see what a healthy brood pattern. So when we talk about brood, it's about the eggs laid in the cells and then fed the royal jelly and capped over and that, that capped brood is bees mm -hmm. forming and then they'll hatch out. Um, and so being able to see the pattern and that comes when you're learning to be a new beekeeper, learning about what brood patterns look like and how the queen bee lays her eggs. And honestly, that part is just... It's it's mind blowing. It is the way the queen work, the way the whole hive works. It's just it's really incredible. It is, and if you only have one, as a new beekeeper, you don't know is this the way it should look, or is this the way? This is why you generally uh, hound somebody on the phone because you're not hundred <laughs> percent sure. But if if you have two and you see one that there's just not much brood in it, and the other one that you have that you start at the same time is going like gangbusters, 
okay, I have an issue with one, mm-hmm. how can I fix it? Mm-hmm. So it's, def- it's definitely much better. Well, okay, so we have some resources for new beekeepers. And just so listeners know, the show notes that are located at weru.org will have links to the things we're talking about today. So you can go right online and, and click on them to learn more and start your own research if you're interested in, in getting into bees. For those of us who have established hives, who have been beekeeping for a year or two years or so, still relatively new, but going into a couple seasons of beekeeping, winter is coming, winter is almost here. What does winter management of hives look like and what should people be looking for? Well, uh, one of the most important things is to make sure you're going into winter with a low mite count, as low as you can get them. So mites are the bane of the bee as well as the beekeeper. And it's very, very important that you're sampling your colonies and finding out what your mite levels are. If you have a high mite level, you want to get on treatment. Hopefully at this point in the year, you've already been doing that and you you know that if they were high, you treat it. If they were not, you've been monitoring them. It, it is super, super important to get them going into winter with a low mite count, as well as their food stores. Throughout the summer, we've been taking honey off the tops of the hives that have been in honey supers, but everybody should have had their honey supers off a little while ago, um, tested the weights of their hives, maybe by hefting them or if they're actually on scales. But you want those packed right full of honey. And if not, uh, hopefully you were feeding them the two to one sugar syrup. So going into winter, the two most important things, low mite count and plenty of food stores to make sure that they're able to get through the winter. And at this point, you know, this time of year, um, again, it went from summer to winter in 24 hours here. (laughs) But um, a lot of of times it's a lot more gradual. You know, your mouse guard should be going on in the fall because the mice are looking for a nice warm place to overwinter and the beehives are nice and toasty warm throughout the winter. So mouse guards on and then the next steps are going to be insulating your hives, feeding rims, either bee cozies or insulation foam board. Some people wrap their hives, some people don't. There's many different schools of thought on that. I know that Peter and I both use bee cozies, uh, which is slides right over uh, a hive. And then we put something in there for moisture control and then some insulation on top. I know that I will be doing that here in the next week or so, um, which is a little early for me to insulate, but the temps are here. And um, I'll also be doing my last mite treatments, to, uh, making sure that they're going in with the lowest amount of mites possible. Yeah, I'm seeing in the forecast that the temps are going to bounce back a tiny bit. And yeah. for those established beekeepers, this is a nice window to get a treatment on when it's hitting 50, 53, 55. That's right. And when we're talking about treatments, I know our audience are really concerned about using, keeping organic farming. Yeah. And all the treatments that we recommend are considered organic treatments. There's a lot of ways of managing bees to keep mite levels low in the first place. And that, that's an ideal scenario that we were using a lot of physical and biological factors to try and keep mite levels from building up in the first place. But every colony gets mites and without fail, they will get mites. And so we need to be prepared to treat those colonies for mites if they get up to certain threshold levels beyond which the colony is almost certainly going to die. And so there's some really good ones, some based on hops extracts, some based on oxalic acid, the sort of acid you find in rhubarb, some on formic acid, the sort of acids that ants use in their defense. These are all really good ways of keeping mite levels low enough that the bees don't have too much of a problem. The problem with mites is, as well as being a parasite and a really big parasite compared to a bee, and they 
it would be like having a tick on us the size of a rabbit. We can imagine a rabbit gnawing on you 24 hours a day. It's going to be not a lot of fun. The bees are sickened by that, but worse still is just like a tick can give us Lyme disease. The might bring in a variety of other viruses, which ultimately are what usually kill the colony. The sad thing is that a lot of, a lot of folks go into beekeeping with the best of intentions thing. I'm going to keep my bees naturally. And they think naturally means don't treat for mites. And their colonies are almost certainly going to die within a year. There are good ways of managing our bees fairly naturally and even without treatment to get very low mite levels. But 99% of the cases, they'll need some form of treatment. And there's some really good organic treatments out there. So I'd really urge people to keep an open mind as to how you're going to control those mites. Because once the bee, once the mites are taken care of, the bees are really good at looking after themselves. When I started keeping bees back in the 70s, we didn't have that mite in the country. And I never lost a hive as a kid keeping bees. But nowadays, if you can keep 90% of your hives alive through the winter, you've done very, very well. The national average is to lose 40% of colonies every year. I think we're keeping better scores than that here. It's because you need to be able to manage for mites. Yeah, I can remember my dad telling me a story as a kid in the late 50s, early 60s of visiting, like following bees. He would find, you know, bees out foraging and follow the bee line, like literally follow Mm -hmm. the bee and find where the hive was in the Mm -hmm. honey tree or something like that just for fun. And it was every year the same. They were keeping, you know, a hive in the same spot every year. That doesn't happen anymore. Like bees that end up in the wild don't last years and years and years anymore. That's right. And although you may know a tree that's had bees in it or it had it last year and they've got bees again this year, it's very often a new swarm which has taken over. Whereas bees could keep going for decades mm-hmm. without a problem. But now now we do have this, this varroa mite which came in in the late 80s. And without fail, the colonies will get the mites and without fail, they'll, they'll almost always die. Mm-hmm. So if, but with good care and preventative treatment, you can keep your bee, you can keep the vast majority of bees healthy and thriving. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about um, management of hives and natural best practices kind of things in a little bit. But before we do a little throwback to bees in the winter, can we just talk about what bees are doing in the winter? I think people Mm -hmm. often, there's some misconceptions about what bees are doing over the winter. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. One of the reasons bees store so much honey and make so much surplus honey is because they eat a heck of a lot of honey over the winter. The bees are actually generating heat in the hive. Not like what we learned in school about cold-blooded creatures being cold all the time, relying on ambient temperatures. Honeybees generate an enormous amount of heat in the hive, and it might be minus 20 outside, and the center of their cluster inside their colony can get up to 98 degrees Fahrenheit. And so to do that, just like we have to burn oil, they burn honey. And they do that by eating it and then vibrating their muscles to generate heat. And so bees will be working on the combs, eating some honey, vibrating their muscles to generate heat and gradually working their way through the combs from the bottom upwards during the winter time. More typically, the cluster might be in the 90, low 90s, 80, high 80s, low 90s. And then sometime around January, they usually start to get it up to 98 degrees. And at that point, they start to rear a small amount of brood or the young bees again. 
and as they generate that heat and the new brood begins to emerge then they lay more eggs and rear more brood and so by the time we get to April the colony might be it may have gone through the winter it may have started off the winter with 20,000 bees in there by the time we're in midwinter we might be down to 15,000 bees or so and by the time we're into very early spring, it might be down to 10,000, but gradually those new bees are starting to replace the dying bees over the winter time. And by the time we're into April, we might be up to 20,000 again. And by the time we're into June, we might be at 100,000. So for beekeepers who have hives this winter, if they've prepped them, they've, they've fed them, they've wrapped them, they've put on the guards, they, they feel like they're secure, they've treated them for the mites. Is there any management over those winter months when you look out and there's three feet of snow or four feet of snow? Yeah, sure. Well, one of the things is, you know, is to go out and check your yards. And if you see dead bees in the snow, it kind of seems not the right thing to be thinking, but if you see dead bees in the snow, that's a good sign because it means some that hive is still alive. The bees inside, the older bees are coming out uh, either to die or they're coming out to go to the bathroom. Fun fact, they, bees uh, do their darndest not to go to the bathroom inside the hive, because again, that can bring in different types of diseases. So if we get a day that it, it's nice and sunny and it warms up a little bit, you'll see a bunch of bees out flying. Um, you'll see a whole bunch of little yellow dots on your snow. So that's another thing you look for when you go out and check your yards is, is it's actually bee poop. And you've got little dots all over, the, all over your yard that's also a good sign since that your hive is, is still thriving. Mm-hmm. Another thing you can do is just as you wrap them up and had them all tucked in for winter, you should heft your hives, just lift, in, lift one end a little bit to get the weight in, mm-hmm. to get a feel for the weight. If it turns January and you go and lift it again, it should be lighter, but it shouldn't be super light. If you find that it's super, super light, then maybe you want to consider putting in some supplemental feed, some dry feed, either sugar bricks or winter patties or something like that. But not syrup. But not syrup, no, because uh, nothing wet, because you don't want to introduce moisture into the hives. Mm -hmm. Uh, The bees need to be able to dehydrate syrup, and they can't do that in the winter. So those are the things you're looking for in the winter. Signs of life, bee poop or dead peas in the snow, and just keeping keeping an eye on the weights of your hive. Yeah, yeah, I can remember my first season beekeeping over the winter and seeing the evidence of the bees and Mm -hmm. being amazed, like... This is crazy. Even bee poop is beautiful. It it's is. like it metallic, is. golden, beautiful. Yeah. One more thing. Except when it's all over your car. Well, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yes. That's what we get in the summertime. Yeah. And boy, that's hard to get off. Yes. yes. And of course, when you first work your bees on the first sunny day in the spring and lots of bees come out, your nice, clean, white bee suit that spring yeah. becomes a polka dot yes. bee suit. If you're just tuning in, I'm Caitlin Barker, and this is Common Ground Radio, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association on WERU 89.9 FM. On today's show, we're discussing beekeeping, and I'm joined by Amy Nickerson and Peter Cowan, beekeepers and co-founders of Beekeeping 24-7, a membership-based beekeeping group. Let's go into another topic that anyone who's beekeeping or wants to start beekeeping needs to think about, which is how the climate is changing and how that's impacting the way we keep bees, especially here in the Northeast. We've had some really dramatic shifts in weather with a drought last year and an incredibly wet summer and the temperatures we had last February that dipped into the, I don't even know, low 40s, below zero, like it's yeah. pretty crazy. So what, what have you noticed? What's changing and how are you adapting as beekeepers? I've certainly been seeing a change. Uh, 
Typically, the bees are flying later in the fall, which is probably the most, most significant one we see at this time of year. This year, not so much that they were flying quite a bit right through October, and we had an 80-degree day before about the 30th of October, and so the bees were typically fairly active through the month. In, and we didn't, haven't even had a frost until this week. Ten years ago, we were getting frosts in September, usually. And when the bees shut down, when we get early frost and it stays cold, it also means that they're not robbing from each other and stealing honey. So one of the biggest management things we see in the fall is that bees have a much longer opportunity to steal honey from each other. Because once those flowers are in decline and there's very little food out there, there's a big opportunity to find food by stealing from hives that are sick. And the hives that are sick are the ones with mites. They're dying from high levels of mites in the hive. And now the bees are going out stealing honey from those dying hives, bringing mites back into the hive again. And that means we're having to treat for mites much later in the season. It used to be that you could just get away with treating once in the fall. Now, typically, you're treating again with something like an oxalic acid vapor um, in the fall to keep mite levels lower. And the droughts in the summer are also predisposing the bees for having problems in the winter because when there's a drought on, there's a lot less nectar coming into the hive and that stresses the bees. So they're going through famine during that time and they're using the honey that they stored in May and June by, we're seeing the honey flow or flow of nectar into the hive finish in early July and sometimes not even starting again in the fall, because very often we'd have a peak of nectar production and therefore honey production in the hive in May and June and into July. There'd usually be a gap that we call the dearth for about four weeks before fall flowers like goldenrod and asters would produce nectar. With the droughts and variable weather, those honey flows have been thrown right up in the air and where they land we don't know but typically what we've been seeing is a much longer gap during the summer where bees were not finding that food so like instead of four weeks eight weeks and the fall honey flow has been extremely variable some years we're not getting the fall honey flow at all this year was different we had so much rain we had difficulty in june but the honey flows in a lot of areas continued pretty well uh, in the summer and then started again in the fall so this year was atypical. This one was a this one was a, a refreshing change from the years of drought that we've had in the past. But when the hives are semi-starving during the summertime, they're predisposed that they're going into the most stressful time of year, stressed. And if they're stressed already, they're vul- even more vulnerable to the mites. They're even more vulnerable to low levels of pesticides. And then they're very vulnerable to stresses of the fall of going into the cold, where they now have to last for another six months without any food. So that's that's been the biggest things that we've we've seen. Uh, so extending those stress periods and extending the robbing periods have been uh, certainly significant in terms of how we've had to adapt our management. Mm-hmm. Did those deeply cold nights affect the bees? Had some interesting things about that. Bees are really tolerant of cold, particularly if they're healthy to start with. And we can insulate them to stop the wild fluctuations of the, of the um, hive's temperatures. And I had some pretty interesting um, 
well-insulated hives made of styrofoam, as it happened. And these two hives, the downside of the styrofoam hive is the top can be pretty lightweight. And I had some stuff on top of my lightweight tops on these two styrofoam hives. And that night where we got down to the minus 60s, there was very strong wind and it blew the structures off and the tops blew away. And I didn't see that for two days. And I went out there two days later, having been minus 60 degrees with wind chill and terrific cold. There on the top of the hives, my cluster of bees still alive. Wow. And they were coping with that and they made it, they made it through the winter. So the bees can cope with that real cold as long as they're healthy. The thing that they do find more difficult is wild fluctuations very rapidly because then they have difficulty getting back together. And so it's a very good idea to insulate hives so that the fluctuations in temperature are minimized so that the um, bees don't have to break cluster and get back together and break cluster and get back together um, because that in itself can cause problems. Right, because when they're clustering in the winter, kind of all hanging out in one area and, and keeping each other warm, but then when it warms up, they kind of break that cluster to go either fly, go onto the other frames, eat yeah. honey, that kind of thing. And if it you have a wild change in temperature and it warms up and six hours later it's 10 degrees, they can get stuck. Right? They can get stuck because they don't get together fast enough yeah. and you end up with lots of little clusters formed around and none of them are big enough to keep the bees, keep them warm. And then you start losing all those little clusters around yeah. the outer edges of the, yeah. of the hive. Mm. So I've, I've seen a lot of hives die that way. Mm-hmm. So good insulation really avoids that problem. I want to talk real quickly about the concept of organic honey because we at Mafka, we certify a lot of different crops and producers. And before I did this show, I said, what do I need to know about certifying organic honey? And my contact, Chris Brigsby at Mafka, who does certification program, said, you can't certify honey in the United States as organic because of how bees forage, like you just can't do it. So does one of you want to talk about like how bees forage and what their range is and why that's not possible? Well, the bees will fly for two to three mile radius around the hive to find food. And there's very, very few of us that live anywhere where your bees are not going to come across pesticide laden plants and um, that sort of thing in that area. So you're not going to be able to avoid bees going into areas that we wish they wouldn't, but they do. And so if the food source is rich enough and the alternatives are not good enough, they're going to go to every type of neonicotinoid and pesticide out there. And so it's a fact of life that we have to keep our bees and be able to manage them knowing that these background levels of pesticides are going to be picked up no matter what. Uh, and so labeling the products that they produce is going to be impossible in terms of saying, Every colony is different. Amy's hives, your hives, my hives are all going to produce honey that's different because they came from different flowers. Mm-hmm. Some of those might be flowers bought from the big box store with lots of neonicotinoids on them. Some might be next to a GMO farm and some might be in organic areas, but all of them are going to have different mixtures in there. So I can see it's really a tough way to it, it falls outside the norm. The only thing that we can say is that we can manage our colonies in organic ways mm-hmm. and not add extra things like synthetic pesticide uh, treatments or miticide treatments and avoid those things. And the management practice we, practices we use can be considered organic, 
but not necessarily where the bees forage. Yeah, as I was reading more about it, it was saying you may be able to buy honey that's been imported from areas like South America that does have the acreage that could verify it as organic, but then you're buying honey that has probably been heat treated at a high temperature, has been traveled a significant distance, it's gone to a bottling factory and then to a distributor and then it's traveled away. So weighing whether that's so important to you that you're willing to have it go through all those iterations or look for local honey where you can find local raw honey that hasn't been heat treated to 105 or 110 degrees, whatever it is, you know has been foraged locally on local plants that are native to the area and has health benefits. Yeah, and also the uh, international packers of honey face other other issues with um, honey being adulterated because not only is it heated in order to prevent to pasteurize and prevent crystallization, but it's been ultra-filtered as well to remove even pollen grains, which form the nuclei in which crystallization can form. But in taking out the pollen grains, they're also taking off the fingerprint of the honey. So therefore, the honey can not be traced to its source of origin, and therefore it can be mixed with all sorts of other honeys where some of these chemicals and that sort of thing, the stuff that we really don't want to see in our food chain can be mixed with it. Mm-hmm. Even corn syrup and sugar syrups of various sorts can be used to dilute it. It becomes harder and harder to trace these mm-hmm. sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so buy, 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 buy local. local. Buy yeah, local. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd like to now talk about beekeeping 24-7, which is a group the two of you created a couple years ago now. What does it involve and what, what does it offer to beekeepers? So as Peter mentioned earlier, we kind of came up with this during the pandemic. And uh, actually my cousin who has one of these online businesses has been trying to get me to do it for years. And during the pandemic, Peter and I were talking and we kind of said, maybe we'll we'll try something like this. And basically what Beekeeping 24-7 is, it's an online education and mentoring group. So what Peter and I offer, um, one of the most important things, especially if you're a new beekeeper, is to find yourself a mentor. And A, during the pandemic, people weren't able to get together and, and you know, go see each other. And B, there's people who are keeping bees in rural areas or there aren't any beekeepers around them. So what we offer, uh, we offer education. We have a complete uh, beginner beekeeping class. There's about 12 one-hour classes that people can go through at their own speed. And the beauty of that is, you know, as well as I do, when we took our beekeeping classes, you're, you know, trying to take notes like crazy. And as I'm writing something, Peter's moved on and and I'm like, what did he just say? And then as soon as you leave that class and you get your bees, that was gone out of my head. I mean, that was gone. This beekeeping class remains online for you to watch as many times as you want. Uh, If you have a question, you can go back and refer to certain sections. So that's one part of, of what we do is, is a full beekeeping class. Uh, we also have 70 plus instructional videos where we show different techniques, how we keep bees, what we do. Some of our members will ask questions. We'll do a video to answer them so they can actually see the answer to their question. And we offer mentorship. Even though everything is done online and virtually, we're there to answer questions. Peter and I are readily available. We have a private Facebook page where our members are on, they post questions, they ask questions, they post pictures of their videos. What are, what am I seeing? Is this right? And Peter and I will quickly answer them um, and answer their questions for them. And other members are also learning 
from other members. Mm -hmm. So right now, we've been doing this for about two years. We have varying levels of beekeeping experience, most of which are new in the first year or two. I still remember that beginner beekeeper mind where I had, what am I looking at? Is this what's supposed, oh my God, I'm killing my bees. You know, and we try and calm those fears a little bit. We're right there with them. We answer their questions. We tell them this is perfectly normal or maybe you need to look at doing something this way. And also online on Facebook groups, there's so much information out there. And you know, if, if, if you do your searches on YouTube or, or the web, there are many different techniques of keeping bees. There's many different, different types of bees. And what Peter and I teach is our method that's been successful for us. And we never say that the other, any other way is wrong, but we teach what has been successful for us. And us, our survival rate is quite high. And there's no negativity. It's, it's, it's beekeeping, it's, we're friendly. Our members are friendly. If you go to some of these other chat groups online and on Facebook, boy, one beekeeper, a brand new person asks a question and then they just get shillelaghed by people answering, do your research or, or you know, you should have known that before you, and there's none of that. Um, there are no stupid questions. We welcome all questions. And especially considering somebody, maybe somebody doesn't dare to ask that question, but somebody else did. So we're not just answering the person who posed that question. Uh, we're probably answering the question that in the minds of other people that are watching as well. Mm -hmm. We have a private Facebook page. So we, again, we post all of our videos on there. We've done this year, we took two hives, uh, a package installation and a nuke installation and went week by week by week to show the progression and what it should look like. And, you know, starting from with just foundation as opposed to drawn comb. So we've taken those hives right up through to the fall. So. We've got amazing members all over the United States. We have uh, quite a few here in the Northeast, but we have them in Florida, Texas, uh, Alaska, which is amazing, and up in Ontario. Canada, yeah. up in Canada as well. And uh, we've had some members travel to come see us. Um, in fact, Ontario came and saw us and uh, spent a couple of days in Peter's Bee Yard here. Uh, we also offer anybody who's local or willing to travel. Peter and I do hands-on beekeeping classes here in the spring and our members can attend for free as well. Oh, nice. So it's really, it's really, you know, we tried something, we didn't know what was going to happen with it. It's been more successful than we could have hoped for. And the group of people that we have are just amazing, like-minded people with zero negativity. Yeah. Another thing that the members are joining us for is, for instance, like the workshop we briefly mentioned that we're doing a introduction is is sort of his beekeeping for me kind of workshop in on 13th to 17th of november and full-time members of beekeeping 24 7 can join these sort of workshops that we do two or three times a year they join those for free so it's a further reinforcing because you get a whole load of new questions hundreds of new questions because we, we may have three to six hundred people joining these workshops and again it's a virtual thing where they see where they see videos so to start with this workshop, for example, next week, we'll, be, we'll do two classes of going through about 45 minutes each, and we'll go through all the basics of beekeeping in a very quick way in order to, as, as you appreciate it, you can't cover an hour and a half everything you need to know about beekeeping. So we go through all the different things so they know what to expect is coming up. And this is really what beekeeping is all about. We're not going to go into all the detail of it right now, but this is what you can expect to need to learn. And then we're going to follow up with two more days of question and answers. So the Monday and Tuesday, these two videos come out, gives people time to digest and 
rewatch it and then send in questions. And on the Wednesday and the Friday, we'll be fielding all those questions oh, about nice. uh, what they've what they want to know and we'll be live with them oh nice we do live yeah yeah we we do live sessions with them and answering them in real time as well as writing all those things down for those who can't attend live and so those workshops worked out really well a good number of people actually join us for the full uh for the full beekeeping membership and we had just wrapped up a winter prep we had over 600 students wow in that class so that was, it, it's, you know, the need is out there and it, it just goes to show us we're kind of on the right track with, with what people, you know, need. And so right now is like, like Peter said, um, next week, we're going to be doing our beginner one. And it's great to be able to take a class like this. It doesn't mean you have to go out and get your bees or, or I mean, but it, to know what to expect. Yeah. And, um, you know, this, this class, whereas we paid a couple hundred dollars for our classes, this is only $10. Uh, because we want to get the message out there. We want to we want to tell people what beekeeping is all about because we're passionate about this and this is a way to do it and for very little very little cost. You're listening to Common Ground Radio, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association on WERU 89.9 FM. A reminder, it's WERU's November membership drive. You can join the WERU family and be part of the community that makes WERU possible. Please consider becoming a member, a sustaining member, or giving an additional gift. We rely on the support of our listeners to keep creating local community radio. Visit weru.org to learn more and take action. I can remember when I got started in beekeeping and was like taking in all the info I could and got my first two hives set up and realizing, okay, I read all about how to do a mite count, looking for varroa mite numbers. But I, I don't know if that transfers exactly. I, like a video would be helpful. So looking on you know YouTube for videos and finding 25 different videos exactly. with 25 different methods that weren't <laughs> great, weren't really filmed that great. So I could kind of figure out what it was. I had no idea if it would work for the climate I lived in or you know if the practices were best practice to keep my bees alive. A lot of you know. Yeah, and that that's where having a single mentor or a single source of information is very very helpful. Whilst where our beekeeping is a little different from different areas around the country, the principles that we we teach are the same everywhere. And using that as an example, you can be having when you're asking a lot of different a big group of people for advice or going out there and not really knowing which one to follow consistently, you can get pulled in different management strategies in different directions and that leads to inconsistency in how you manage your bees, which then can be problematic. Whereas keeping to a tried and tested way and being guided through that, get it right over a year or two, then start adapting different different techniques and things. Once you get the basics done, then experimentation is one of the joys of beekeeping because you can do all sorts of different things. Mm-hmm. But you want to get the basics right first. And if you get the basics right, then then you've got a platform on which to adapt it to just the way you want to keep these. Yeah. And we've also had, I mean, once you get, like Peter said, you get the basics down and you're a little bit comfortable, there are different things you can do. You know, once you're comfortable, you can experiment with your hives and doing different methods on maybe something for honey production or I'm going to try with my own nuke, try making my own nukes um, we go through all of that and do videos on all of that as well. So our our business, Beekeeping 24-7, is tailored to what our members are asking for mm-hmm. and what they need. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it's been absolutely amazing. It's It's been a great journey. And we've, we've seen people start with us right from the beginning. And now looking back, man, one 
Um, there's people who started off with one or two highs and one person now has 12. And, and the people, watching people post their success stories, just, I mean, that just warms our heart. That's yeah. exactly yeah. what we want. And they're losing a lot less than 40% of their highs as well. <laughs> That's impressive, yeah. Really the numbers don't sign. lie. Yeah. 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 Well, I want to wrap up our interview. We've got a few minutes left with one final question, which is, what is your favorite part of beekeeping? And I'll let you think for a minute while I say my favorite part of beekeeping is literally in being in the bee yard, working in the bees. It's like the closest, I do not meditate. I have not figured out how to meditate, but I imagine it's the closest to med- meditation that I've come and that I'm very focused, but also just the most relaxed I've ever felt. And it's just completely like wondrous comes to mind. It sounds corny, but being able to watch the bees is like, very meditative and like amazing to watch what they're doing and sometimes i'll just do what i need to do and then sit back and just watch them for a while because i know there's research on the buzzing and like the effect on the body that the buzzing of bees has that's a whole other a whole other topic we get to get into but it definitely has an impact on my mental health and so for the two of you what's your favorite part of beekeeping i for me i just love there was times when I, I, you may tell from my accent, I spent some time overseas yeah. in, in <laughs> yeah. Britain. And there were several years there when I was at boarding school. My hives were in New England, in Massachusetts when my dad was looking after my bees and I was at boarding school in England and things. And when they had a spring, warm spring day, I just missed bees so much. Uh, every time you had a warm spring day and it was still, I just picture myself being in, in the bee yard and, that's what I really, really like it. And now in Massachusetts, it was in April and May, and here May, June. So I just love being in the hive when things are sort of booming in the bee yard and flowers, in, in, every, everything's in bloom. Nectar's flooding into the hive and the bees are just growing so super fast. That, that's the thing that really I think about mm. that, that I love the most. Mm. How about you, Amy? And mine is a lot similar to yours. Like I said, I my job is super stressful. And to be able to go out in the mornings, I'll go out with a cup of coffee and in my shorts and t-shirt and stand right next to my hive and, and just watch them going in and out. And I learned so much just by watching them. I mean, I learned that there's such a thing as blue pollen because one day I look and my girls had little blue pollen pants on. I'm like, wait a minute, well, you know, and I actually followed them to find out where they were going to find out what has blue pollen. And I learned Siberian squirrel. I found wow. out a neighbor with a whole yard of it. So it's watching and letting, and them teaching us. Um, but it's also the sound and the smells. Um, there's nothing like the smell of either honey curing or even, I don't, I know a lot of beekeepers, especially new ones, once you're done working your bees, you take your gloves off, and you smell your hands and it's got that that beeswax smell and uh, it's just it's calming all the way around and and i don't know where i'd be right now if i didn't have this hobby um it would definitely be a lot more stressed and it's definitely a mental health um just and amazing and i love obviously talking about bees mm-hmm. and god help the person who asked me a question and <laughs> i'll talk their ears off or at least until they walk away <laughs> Yes. No, I hear that too. Yeah. It's, it's always me, me kind of judging. How deep do I need to go? Yeah. Can, can I keep That's going, right. or are they ready to yeah. walk away? And, and you know what? Nine times out of ten, they're like, "Really? 
I didn't know that. And you tell them things, they all think they hibernate or they, or they die mm-hmm. off. Or, mm-hmm. um, usually you start talking about it and they just keep asking the questions. I'm like, all right, you asked for it. Yeah. On we go. But the other thing that's, that I really love is taking somebody into the bee yard for the first mm-hmm. time. Yeah. I love taking my grandson in there, but I love taking any beginner into the bee yard and just sort of showing them that they're just, oh my God, it isn't couldn't believe what they're seeing there mm-hmm. um and so that that's a lot of sharing it with somebody else uh, really adds a lot to it yeah know? yeah i yeah. echo that i be kept did, kept be with my dad for a number of years and i i can't tell you how valuable that is to me since he's passed it's been it was something that brought us really close together so yeah, yeah. they're definitely an, an amazing creature and, and i think the more people learn about them and get these experiences the more people will get hooked yeah and on that same note the more i learned about bees the more my interest was piqued about other systems in nature so you you start to become aware of like well wait a minute what are these ants doing over here and Mm -hmm. and then you start realizing ants have a very intricate you know system and structure to the way and and it just expands and that i think that's healthy yes and now now you can't drive past a flowering tree and think oh the bees would be great right every you start really appreciating appreciating what's going on in the environment around you and mm-hmm. suddenly taking an interest in botany i was always a zoologist but now i've i'm taking an interest in botany as well because yeah. all this how how everything is so interwoven yeah yeah it really yeah. starts connecting you more to nature well we've hit our limit on time unfortunately i feel like this is why i didn't write a lot of questions i knew we could just keep talking <laughs> we could keep going right. um but unfortunately we've reached the end i'm gonna put resources including links to beekeeping 24 7 into the show notes so anybody who's who is interested could go to weru.org and check it out it sounds pretty exciting thank you both for joining me this was great um and I appreciate you talking with me about bees. Thank Wonderful. You. Thank you very much. Thank you. Common Ground Radio is a production of the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association in conjunction with WERU. I'd like to thank my co-host, Holly Cedarholm, and also our co-worker, Claire Boland, who produces the show. Common Ground Radio can be heard here on the second Thursday of each month at 4 p.m. Archives of previous episodes can be found on weru.org, as well as on the WERU app. This week is WERU's Fall Fund Drive. We're asking our community of listeners to consider becoming a new member, a sustaining member, or giving an additional gift. This helps keep programming on the airwaves and online and helps us continue creating great community radio. For more information, visit weru.org. Thanks for tuning in today. Now stay tuned for more great programming right here on WERU 89.9 FM.